Some of our most important time we spend with our families is around the dinner table. It doesn't matter how big or how small your family is. It's that time around the table when you put down your phones and pick up forks where you really start to talk. And Gobble gets that. This meal prep service makes it quick and easy to cook nutritious, delicious meals even on your busiest day. It takes 15 minutes or less to make most of their meals. You cannot get delivery that fast, and it's probably not as fresh as Gobble. Gobble's meal kits are delivered every week with super fresh produce, and there's no planning, there's no shopping. They chop everything for you. They marinate everything for you. And most of the recipes are just one pan, so there's really nothing to clean up. You need to just focus on having that meal with your family. And speaking of having a meal with your family, Mother's Day is coming up, and Gobble knows this. And they've actually created a Mother's Day brunch kit. I got to preview this brunch kit. Uh, It is... Simple but luxurious, I would say. Um, It has some uh, strawberry rose compote for pancakes. And who doesn't like pancakes? There are pancakes in it. Mom's going to love pancakes. It's not too hard to make, and yet you did do something. Even if you aren't a mom, I think you might like this meal. In fact, I know you would like this meal. See what a difference Gobble makes in your family's dinner routine. They're offering my listeners this fantastic limited-time deal, six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. That's dinner for two for three nights for just $36. And it's only available at my special URL. So go to gobble.com slash friends. That's gobble.com slash friends for six meals for just $36 and free shipping. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Stephanie Land is this week's guest. Her book, Made, is about the year she spent working as a house cleaner while raising her daughter, Mia, as a single mother, with the assistance of, at one point, seven different kinds of welfare. It is hysterically funny and deeply resonant. She writes about the shit she sees, quite literally, cleaning rich people's houses. And she writes about the joys and frustrations of shepherding another life into a society that has not made clear that it wants her. It is hilarious and moving. And as we discuss in the interview, you will never look at a toilet the same way again. Coming right up, Stephanie Land. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So I think you know, we have so much to talk about. I, I loved your book, um, but I, I think maybe we should start by kind of getting a taste of it. Will you read us, read us a bit from it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll read a couple, a few paragraphs from um, The Chef's House. Uh, each chapter of the book is kind of named after the house that it centers around. So it goes... When we lived in the homeless shelter, I sat up late at night, long after Mia went to bed. As the night stretched out before me, I created a vision of a happy life. There would be a large yard of freshly cut green grass and a tree with a swing hanging from a branch. Our house wouldn't be terribly big, but large enough that Mia could run around in it, maybe with a dog, and build forts beneath the rungs of furniture. Mia would not only have her own room, but her own bathroom, too. Maybe there'd be a proper guest room or an office where I could write, a real couch and a matching love seat, a garage. If we only had these things, I thought, we would be happy. Most of my clients had these things, the things I yearned for in those dark nights sitting up alone, 
and they did not seem to enjoy life any more than I did. Most worked long hours away from the homes they fought hard to pay for, with even farther commutes than mine. I began to pay attention to the items that cluttered their kitchen counters, the receipts for rugs that were as expensive as my car, the bill for the dry cleaner that could replace half my wardrobe. In contrast, I divided my hourly wages into 15-minute increments to add up how much of my physical work paid for gas. Most days, I spent at least an hour just making the money it took in gas to get to work in the first place. But my clients worked long hours to pay for lavish cars, boats, and sofas they kept covered with a sheet. They worked to pay Classic Clean, who paid me just above minimum wage to keep it all spotless, in place, acceptable. While they paid for my work like some magical cleaning fairy, I was anything but that, shuffling through their house like a ghost. My face had an ashen hue from lack of sun, dark circles under my eyes from lack of sleep. Usually my hair was unwashed, pulled into a ponytail or under a handkerchief or hat. I wore pairs of Carhartt cargo pants until the holes in the knees were unsightly enough that my boss told me to replace them. My job offered me little money to spend on clothes even for work. I worked through illnesses and brought my daughter to daycare when she should have been at home. My job offered no sick pay, no vacation days, no foreseeable increase in wage, yet through it all, still I begged to work more. Wages lost from missed work hours could rarely be made up, and if I missed too many, I risked being fired. My car's reliability was vital, since a broken hose, a faulty thermostat, or even a flat tire could throw us off knock us backward, send us teetering, falling back toward homelessness. We lived, we survived, in that careful imbalance. This was my unwitnessed existence, as I polished another's to make theirs appear perfect. Thank you so much for that. I feel like that yeah. reading... <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm so pleased because you chose that reading, but it really encapsulates or, or represents a lot of the themes of the book. One of them being a big one being work, you know, just how difficult it is to be poor, like the the exhaustion of working in that environment. And that and that sets the stage for I wanted to ask kind of a larger question here because though I'm excited to talk to you about your particular experience and I especially want to talk to you about the grace and empathy that you show your clients. There's a little bit of that in that, that piece too. I feel like we can't have this conversation without at least acknowledging the fact that there's policy being talked about right now that's relevant to your experience, which is that the Trump administration is looking to increase work requirements on SNAP even more. So <laughs> do you want to talk about work requirements? Because I feel like it's sort of like a, there's a shadow of that in the piece, in the, in the excerpt you just read. But maybe you can speak to it directly. Yeah, I um, I, I could talk the entire hour about that. Um, the the thing that is happening right now or what's what's current is um, most able-bodied adults with um, children over the age of six or um, who are under the age themselves. I think the age most cutoff is, is like around 60. It depends on the state. Um, but in order to receive SNAP, they're required to work 20 hours a week. And that is um, physical... Uh, 
paid by the hour work. It does not include uh, going to class or doing homework, um, caring for a disabled or elderly um, relative or friend. Um, there, it doesn't count having to go to the uh, government assistance office itself to meet with a um, caseworker, a social worker. It um, there are there's so much work that poor people do that is completely invisible and and not accounted for, and uh, as a single mother, um, especially when I went on to work as like a self-employed cleaner, um, I, I was actually denied food stamps at one point because, um, my daughter was now over the age of six years old and I was going to school full time and I could only work like 15 hours a week. And, um, I felt like I was being punished for bettering my life. Um, I personally think work requirements are, asinine. I, I think they're ridiculous. I think um, poor people shouldn't have to prove that they're working in order to get what amounts to a little over a dollar a meal per person. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think it's demeaning. I mean, I could I could go on and on. Um, well, I think it's a, it's relevant to to kind of the whole discussion of poverty because it does even the very term work requirement does yeah. <laughs> dismiss a lot. Right. Like it dismisses the work of being alive and it speaks to the assumptions that people have about poverty. Right. And about welfare, which is that if you're not working, you're not doing anything. Well, right. I mean, you know, Clinton kind of started this welfare to work term um, in the late 90s. And and so but also that's kind of matched with the American myth that we have where, um if you work hard enough that you'll make it. And so the flip side of that is if you're not making it, then you're not working hard. And and so I think we look at people in poverty or, you know, even people who are, you know, on the brink of poverty or might just be lower income, but still need that supplement if they're working full-time minimum wage. Um, they have full-time jobs and they're still not able to make ends meet for, you know, many reasons. <laughs> there's, you know, the housing market. And I, I, there's a lot of reasons why minimum wage work is not a living wage. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I just think it's, um, it assumes that uh, poor people are taking advantage of the system um, and, and that they're somehow like using these resources as an advantage or, you know, just buying steaks or lobsters with them or, and, and so I, yeah, it, it, <laughs> well, I get a little upset. <laughs> well, I don't want to, I want to keep you from getting too upset, but it, I, there's so much about your experience that, that speaks to busting some of the myths and assumptions that people have, because I think the myths and assumptions people have are direct, you know, contradiction to what is true about poverty. For instance, that we're all closer to it than we realize, I, I was looking up some statistics um, in preparation for the show, and this is from last year. More than half of Americans between 25 and 60 will experience at least one year of hovering around the poverty line. Yeah, uh, I think there's another statistic uh, that something like 90% of Americans cannot afford an unexpected expense that's 500 to to $1,000 or something like that. Like, they're... 
they're living that close to paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. you know, which we saw with the government shutdown. You know, after two missed paychecks, people couldn't afford afford to buy groceries. And those are supposed to be really good jobs. Uh, and and I, I think it's a lot more common than people think. Um, but we're, we're taught that uh, struggling is, is shameful. And so people put their best faces all over social media, you know, whenever they go out, you know, everything is fine. We're perfect. And uh, I think the more that we actually share how close we are to really struggling, you know, maybe the more of a community effort will be made to to make a lot of change. I think that's a really good insight because at the same time that we have all these assumptions about poverty, it is true that not only are Americans themselves hovering near it, even if they don't know it, there is this insecurity about people's position that is very justified. Uh, I was looking at other other statistics about income volatility, which has apparently increased a lot too, which also is a disadvantage sort of socially because it means that even when you're doing well, you know it doesn't always last. And I, I wonder... And maybe your experience can sort of clarify or illuminate this. I wonder how many of the assumptions we make and the dismissive attitude we might have towards poverty, the 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 snobbery we might have, I don't know how else to put it, is because we want to other it, right? Definitely. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I talk about this all the time. I, I think it's um, it's a sort of defense mechanism because poverty is scary. I mean, if you think about uh, losing everything and having to move into your car, that's a very vulnerable, like raw, like scary, fearful thing. And so what people do, I mean, it happens to me all the time, is um, they'll put a lot of blame on what they feel are my bad decisions. And so I didn't go to college. I had a baby out of wedlock. I, you know, all of these things that they'll put on me. Um, And I think they do that because then they look at themselves and say, oh, well, I went to college. I got married. I had kids that were planned for. I, you know, live next to my parents. You know, there's there's all of these things that I did that she didn't do. And so therefore, I will never be in that place. And another thing that goes along with that is since I made all of these bad decisions, I brought it on myself. So why should I help her? Yeah. And this came up a lot. Basically, like this is a theme of your existence during the time that you described during this book, is that you were constantly being kind of communicated this, that you don't deserve the help that you're getting in all these different ways. What were some of the ways that, that stood, stood out the most to you? Like I'm thinking of the way you're treated by strangers, the way you're treated by the government. Like what what got to you? I think it was um, hearing my friends talk either um, directly to me about the things that I was doing. Like I had the friend who was when I was in the homeless shelter, she told me you're welcome um, and said my tax dollars are paying for all of those resources you're using right now. Um, but also just what people would post on Facebook, um, what people would say in conversations around me, not knowing that I was on food stamps, um, just kind of getting these firsthand uh windows into what they really felt about people on food stamps. Uh, it, it caused me to, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of literally hunched over and, and walked around in the world not wanting to be seen. And it seems like from reading the book, and you don't make this direct um, connection, so let me know if I'm wrong, but 
It seems like the shame that you were kind of that was put on you by your friends kept you from looking for more resources sometimes. Like you refused to go to a food bank, right? Well, it, a lot of that was because I felt like there were other people who needed it more than I did. Hmm. Uh, but looking back, like I totally would have benefited from going to the food bank. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just didn't for some reason because um, the recession was so horrible. And every time that I went to a government assistance office, you know, DSHS, Department of Health and Human Services, um, the lines were amazing. I mean, there was, it was always crowded. Uh, and and I felt like, well, at least I have a job. We have a place to stay um, that I can sort of afford. I, I have some food. We're fine. Like, that's all for people who need it more than I do. But I, I, again, like I kept on wanting to, I kept writing the mar- margins like, go, like, <laughs> no, it's okay. Like you can, you, you can use that. Um, although you do make it, you do, you do make it through this experience. And, and maybe that's important for us to recognize. And I also want to ask you, I don't, you probably don't get this question a lot, but what of the things that you use to get through this period really worked for you? Were there forms of government assistance or forms of social assistance that you're like, yes, that is how more of the system should work? Well, I would say uh, my daughter getting Medicaid, uh, I don't know what would have happened if that wasn't there. Uh, She required um, a lot of help. (laughs) Like she always had pink eyes. She had ear tube surgery. Uh, She was always going to the doctor and there would have been absolutely no way I could have afforded that. I could have really used Medicaid, um, but I made too much for that. Um, I mean, food stamps, of course, helped, um, but usually that was around anywhere between $200 and $300 a month. um, But that was our only budget for food. So I really had to make that stretch. Um, without a child care grant, I wouldn't have been able to work. Um, I, there's just no way I would have been able to afford child care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are the three top ones that I can say, if I didn't have those, then I wouldn't have been able to survive. And I'm not asking you to be a policy genius here, uh, you know, just um, on the spur of the moment. But I am curious if you could wave a magic wand and make our welfare policy look like anything. Like, is there is there something that you can imagine? Is there a system that you can imagine that that would would have worked for you at least? Like, what would you change? I oh goodness. I mean, I I love the uh, universal basic income attitude. I think, um, I think that is something that we really need to start looking into more. Um, but people have a really, really hard time with just giving poor people money, not having any control over where it goes. So I, I say that we need to get behind, uh, universal childcare and universal healthcare, especially for children. Um, I feel like the average American voter could at least get behind taking care of kids and taking care of the people who take care of our kids. Um, you know, it, say what you want about their parents, but these are children. And, you know, one in 30 kids who go to public school is homeless. Mm-hmm. And that's one kid in every classroom. And so I, I think we need to really branch out and start helping the children. 
I'll go ahead and, and speak for the people that aren't their parents necessarily even. I, I, I Universal basic income is a hobby horse of mine. I completely agree with <laughs> you. <laughs> like, I don't think it's a radical idea at all. And I think it addresses a lot of, you know, imbalances in the system. And a lot of us, it, it might do a lot to erase some of the assumptions about what poverty is like if everyone got it in a way, you know, like if it wasn't just like, oh, people who don't work get welfare. And it was mm-hmm. more like, no, everyone gets some money because we all are worthy of being taken care of, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> there is a, I get, I've gotten to, into arguments with, let's just say some of my colleagues in the crooked media universe about whether or not <laughs> People need to work to have dignity. That phrase bothers me. <laughs> Having dignity because you have a job or yeah. able to like, hold down like, a job? We just gave money. If we just gave money away, like, how would people, like, you know, have any self-respect? Stephanie, could oh, you answer that I, question for me? <laughs> I think their self-image would improve. Their mental health would improve. Um, it gave me a huge amount of relief to just have some amount of money that I could absolutely depend on being there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't really happen until I got a job with um, the Center for Community Change uh, just a few years ago and had a stipend. And the stipend was enough. I think it was $800 a month. And that was enough to, I was in low-income housing. So it was enough to pay my rent and my utilities for, for where I lived. And just having that amount, I knew it wasn't going to go away, was such a huge relief. Uh, I I remember just feeling this weight off of my shoulders. Um, and I was at an event in D.C., I think, last month, and um, Mayor Michael Tubbs was there talking about uh, how he's going to start UBI for uh, in Stockton. And I think they're starting out at $500 a month for every citizen. And uh, it, it was so radical to hear him talking about it so openly and and to have all these people nodding and saying, yes, definitely. Um, and it was a really encouraging that that people are actually trying it and and that people are looking at that and saying like, oh, well, maybe we should try that too. Yeah, just in case people weren't hearing my sarcasm, because um, I know that this, <laughs> this medium is somewhat limited. I mean, my belief is that UBI is an extension of the philosophy that all human beings have basic worth. You know, that mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything to prove that you're worthy. That merely existing right. means that you are valued as a member of our human community. And then to put demands on it, as soon as you start putting qualifications or demands on it, you create a hierarchy and you exclude people, you know? And yeah, and that, then we all kind of know where that road leads because we live in it. So my hope is that we can at least change some of the thinking around that by talking about UBI, right? Um, I think there's a whole like avalanche of things that it might help, including journalism, which I've talked about before. If people felt, if more people could enter journalism, like... I think we might have better journalism. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> when I started off as a freelancer, at, I, I think I had 30 pieces going at a time just to oh, wow. make ends meet. And I was doing that with like a, a baby in my lap. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, journalism is 
you know, we've just seen a lot of layoffs recently and, and I don't want to say it's like a dying occupation or anything like that. I don't want to be that dismal, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the power of storytelling is, is what actually creates change. And if you get out there and, and like I did, you know, if you get out there and you talk about like what you've been through and, and what's happening in your life and, and make it universal, um, that's how people connect to each other. And that's how people um, start to think differently because they have more empathy. And I would love to see um, more low-income writers have the opportunity to write. And just to have a voice, right, to just be included in the conversation about poverty. Um, friend of the pod, uh, Linda Torado, has pointed out, like, we, it, poverty policy is one of the few policies that, that we feel free to make without the input of those people that it affects, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm a huge fan of her book and, uh, and her. Yes. I, I love her Twitter. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I, I've been to a lot of— um, gatherings, I guess you would call them. And and there are panels and they're all people talking about people in poverty. And I walk away, like usually I'm like, at times I felt like the token poor person who gets up and says a little thing about my personal life. And then a lot of people talk about what's best for me. And I kind of reach out to the organizers and I'm like, where are all the poor people? Like, why aren't we talking to them and asking them what they need? Yeah, like we've gotten better sort of, especially on the progressive side of the spectrum, we've gotten better at being mindful about the inclusivity of race, the inclusivity of, you know, different kinds of bodies, different kinds of, you know, genders and sexualities. But for some reason, like class is this invisible thing that we, again, it's like the one area, maybe not the one area, please excuse me, other people are already counting off things in their head, but it's one of the areas where we feel like, oh, no, we can have a panel on this without the input of the person we're talking about. No, that'd be fine. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm an expert in poverty. Like, again, if someone told you they were an expert in disability and they were able-bodied, like, you might be like, okay, well, that's interesting. You put a lot of your life into this. <laughs> and I, I, I believe you, right? But I also want to hear from someone who's been through it, you know? And, yeah. And we don't do that with class. We don't have that premium of experience, so— I think that's yeah. Eh, eh. Well, I, I I talk a lot about this, um, especially with community change, because they're very um, community organized. Um, you know, going to to union rallies and protests, and uh, it's really hard to get poor people to show up for that. And and you know, they need childcare and they need covered wages and they need um, food, or they just. They need a lot of things and they need to see that what they say is actually going to help in the long run. Um, and so I think when you're discussing like panels and um, especially journalism, like giving interviews, um, it's really hard to compensate a person. Like in a lot of times, it's like just not allowed. Um, and But really, you're asking this person to spend an hour or two of their time during the day to to give to talking about their life. And I think the average person who is working extremely hard just to make ends meet will say no to that. I think that's a really good point. And, and while it's not a perfect parallel by any means and not necessarily a great metaphor, I think of disability again, because when we talk about having panels about that issue, we make the panel itself accessible, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like we make it possible for the person we've invited to get on the stage and share whatever that takes, right? Whether it's a, a sign language interpreter or a ramp, whatever. We should be thinking that way about class too, right? If we've asked yeah. this person to participate, we should make it accessible to them. Otherwise, it's an empty invitation. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, I agree. You and I agree on this. <laughs> <laughs> but I am glad you brought up um, the obstacles to participation in sort of civic life um, for poor people. Because it is mm-hmm. true, only about a quarter of economically insecure people vote. And that's people who with 200 uh, percent, people who earn 200 percent um, above the poverty line, Right. Mm-hmm. Now, that's compared to about half of all Americans. So they're way underrepresented in the voting population. And I think it's easy for anyone who's heard the last two minutes of our conversation to understand why that is. Um, voting is hard. But it's a kind of voter suppression that I think even liberals don't talk about. Yeah, I I think there's a few things going on there. I mean, one is a poor person's life is so entirely ruled by the government already and they have to fill out so much paperwork just to prove that they you know quote unquote deserve (laughs) these like things that they're getting um just another thing to fill out and to go do and to participate in is um I don't know it's kind of like a sometimes it's kind of like a slap in the face because Mm -hmm. you're voting on these things and you keep voting and and nothing happens. Um, And you just figure like, they don't care about me. Um, They're just going to do what they want. It doesn't matter what I have to say. Um, But also, you know, I'm tired. I worked 10 hours a day. I've got to go home and spend the next three hours cleaning my house and taking care of my kids. Like, or there's access, you know, vehicles, transportation, um, there's there's a lot of things that can go on with um, voting being more of a privileged thing. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's the harder they make it, uh, you know, as far as uh, people who are accused of felonies uh, can't vote. Um, there's a lot of people um, that just have whatever reason to to not be able to to vote. Yeah, the obstacles that we already put in the way disproportionately affect people, you know, uh, who are in or above, just above poverty, right? Like, even the voter ID issue, like, we think of that as a racial problem, but it is actually really more of a class, or it is also an issue around poverty and about being, the, the I mean, you your book sort of bears this out, the, the, um, you know, involuntary mobility that comes with poverty, like having to change the place that you live over and over and over. Um, Right, yeah. I mean, it's just we make it, the more we make it a burden for anyone, it's going to disproportionately be a burden for people without resources. So, yeah, that's another thing you and I agree on. (laughs) All right. Well, and, you know, I I say again and again, systemic racism and systemic poverty go hand in hand. So, um there's there's that whole part of it, too. We are going to take a quick break, and I want to pick up um, talking more about kind of the personal side of your experience, um, both when it comes to privilege and just what it was like to live through this. So we'll be right back. Rothy's shoes are kind of 
Internet Shoes, uh, like another brand that I probably shouldn't mention. They're advertised a lot on Instagram. And if you're like me, if you see something advertised on Instagram enough, you can start to resent it because it starts to seem less like a product and more like some fetishistic lifestyle. But I actually have a pair of Rothy's, and I should tell you that they're great shoes. Um, They're super comfortable. They are machine washable. They come in really bright colors, and they're made from recycled plastics. Um, There's basically nothing bad about them. You are uh, doing your part to decrease the plastic in the world. Um, You're wearing comfortable shoes, uh, and, you know, you look good. And I've dropped this before, but I'll say it again, which is that I know someone who does a lot of walking around as an activist, and she wears Rothy's. So I think that would be a big testimony to how comfortable they are and uh, I guess your ability to kick ass also while wearing them. And right now, Rothy's has an amazing deal for my listeners. Use code WFLT to get free shipping with no minimum purchase. You get free shipping and free returns and exchanges on your shoes, although you you won't return them, I promise, unless you don't like, don't like the color, maybe. Um, but go to rothys.com, rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S.com, and enter W-F-L-T to get your new favorite flats and free shipping. Once you try shoes that are comfortable, stylish, and sustainable, you're never going to wear anything else. Head to rothys.com and claim this offer. Sticking to a weight loss plan can be hard, especially when you don't know how to handle the thoughts and obstacles that hold you back from making progress. Most people who lose weight gain it all back. Why? Because most weight loss plans just tell you what to do while you're on the plan, not after. With Noom, you'll lose the guilt and learn how to develop a new relationship with food. I can speak to this personally. I have been using the Noom app for, I think, a couple weeks. And I have been very pleasantly surprised, very pleasantly and very surprised uh, about how it's worked out for me. It makes food logging really, really easy. That's the number one thing that I, I guess I was resistant to. I didn't want to think about how much I was eating or what I was eating. But the Noom app, it, it has a whole bunch of stuff pre-populated. I eat a lot of Trader Joe's. And basically, someone must have gone through and entered every Trader Joe's item into the Noom database because I can pull it up really easy. And just by tracking my food as a start, which is all they kind of ask of you. They're not going to make you do like something crazy, like restrict yourself to 800 calories a day. Just by tracking my food and seeing how I ate broken down into kind of, you know, healthier and unhealthier options, you get a pie chart at the end of the day that shows like um, what foods you ate that are high caloric density versus low caloric density. I use like fruits and vegetables versus like fats, you know. And I'm, I'll be, I'll be honest that my, I like the tasty things that fat does, so kind of go overboard there sometimes. But I never feel shamed using this app. I never feel like it's a chore, and I feel like I could do it for a while. I think two weeks is probably the longest I've ever, it's definitely the longest I've ever kept a food diary. And just keeping the diary after the first few days, it got easier for me to make good choices because I knew I was going to be entering it, right? And making those good choices has made me feel better. I have slept better in the past few weeks. Um, I have felt better just in general. Um, like I usually get a lot of headaches this time of year. I don't know if that has anything to do with eating, but 
I'm not getting my headaches. Uh, this is this is an ad for Noom, and I really have been using it. And so you should try it out. Their big thing I should add uh, is they have a uh, you have a weight uh, you have a coach you have a goals coach and you have a group of people that you can also communicate with, and that comes like a little bit later in the program after you've used it for a couple weeks, and that has been cool too just to see people on the same journey as I am. But I want to emphasize that you get to start kind of with training wheels. And uh, it makes it easy and non-threatening and, again, sustainable. The other thing about Noom that has changed my relationship with food is that they do this thing every day you get like a quiz about psychological tricks um, and tips in your relationship to food, things like bundling your habits uh, or creating situations where you get a reward for doing a thing that you should do but don't want to do. Like one of the suggestions, for instance, is to listen to a podcast only when you're on the treadmill. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, just a suggestion. I wouldn't want you to delay listening to this podcast. But the idea is like you connect a thing that you know you want to do, like listen to this podcast, with a thing you're more reluctant to do, like get on the treadmill, and you make a rule for yourself. That's a lot easier than just getting on the treadmill, and it's a lot more motivating. And also, the kind of person I am, like finding out tips and tricks, um, I don't know, it makes me more interested in what I'm doing than if I just like get told what to do. So I am fully recommending this. Noom.com slash friends, what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash friends to start your trial today. That's Noom.com slash friends. Start losing weight for good. So the, as the excerpt shows, I mean, what this book is really about, like on a, in a literal way, is your experience cleaning homes. And it is, um, you're a wonderful writer. <laughs> I, Thank you. I, I, there's, there's a lot of like emotional texture to the book, but also I want to compliment you on the, the way that you described these homes. Uh, and you get a real feel for, like, what it was like to be inside them. Unfortunately, I will say it's almost too much for a couple of the homes. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, there's a few places that are really filthy, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say maybe in the paperback you can do a content warning for those sections. <laughs> uh, we won't read them aloud, but I am curious— <laughs> This is the most literal part of our conversation, I promise. But I had this thought as I was like skimming that those sections because I didn't want to read too close because it was bother you know I, my own like gag reflex was going. What didn't you put in? What level of grossness <laughs> was there really? Uh, well, do you really want to know? <laughs> well, you can just tell me um, it's worse <laughs> than I put in. That would that would be one thing you could say, and I would be like, okay, yeah, all right. And then, but maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe you should share a little bit. It's, it's, I think it's actually kind of important because it's what you did. Yeah. I mean, there were some days that I cleaned five toilets. Uh, and just because a person is living in a nice house and has like roses all over their bathroom does not mean that their toilet is not going to be disgusting. And it's, I don't even like, cleaning my own toilet. I mean, it's just <laughs> gross. Um, and so doing that again and again and again every single day and doing it in the way that I had to, where you get down on your hands and knees and you reach into the bowl with a rag to scrub it out with Comet, like um, it's, it's absolutely disgusting. Um, 
I mean, there were a lot of stuff that I didn't, that I didn't put in there or that I didn't include. Um, but yeah, the stuff that I did put in was either absolutely necessary for the narrative of the book or, um, was a bit more on the dramatic side or it was good (laughs) in scene. Um, but there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't include that, that definitely gave me pause of my, of my life (laughs) and what I was doing. I believe there's one scene where you talk about, I believe the the sentence is this toilet defeated me. Yeah. I felt disrespected (laughs) Disrespected by by the toilet. Yeah. I mean, I I think we could say we've all been there, but then again, no, not everyone's been there and not everyone's had to clean a toilet five times a day. And it, I guess, you know, there's a part of me that's like, well, didn't you get used to it? But no, I, I mean, maybe it's impossible. Maybe you're just always aware that this is the job that you have. Is that true? I. I never got used to it. I always tell people to think of when you're going into a public restroom, like especially an airport or something like that, and you see a stall and you open it and it's just gross in there. And you're like, oh, God. And you like shut the door as quickly as possible. Someone has to clean that. And so like that is the thing that you're asking people who clean up after you to do is to clean these just disgusting, like no thought for anybody coming after them to either sit on that toilet and use it or to just uh, clean up after them. I think it just really goes into like this invisible nature of these jobs of people whose main job in life is to clean up after people and make their lives easier. Uh, and yet we we don't think about them at all. And we don't think about them to the point where we're not willing to give them a, will, a living wage. And and so I just think there's a lot like wrapped up into that. Um, I would have loved if my clients had flushed before they left the house. That's That's one thing I would have really liked. I don't want to get too much on a sidebar here because I actually want to talk to you more about kind of individual responsibility and individual um, uh, Im- implication, um, whether or not people how, – how people are and aren't complicit in this system. But I will say that I think at some point when I got sober – and it's going to sound silly that this is connected maybe – I started – I had this realization about public restrooms, which was that – if my instinct is to just close the door because the toilet isn't flushed, maybe I should just flush the toilet. Like, because <laughs> yeah. someone has to, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, and it's, what is it going to do to me? Like, oh, wait, there's somebody's crap in there, right? Like, pushing mm-hmm. the handle so that the next person doesn't have to deal with it is, like, not a lot to do, right? And I think it's weird that people just think it's okay, you know? like. I'll, I, someone will do that. Some invisible person will take care of this. We should probably, re- yeah. There's, they're not invisible. They're right there. <laughs> and you could do this thing. <laughs> they, would make, like, you would, they would make this person's job like five seconds easier. Five seconds less gross. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, rant ended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the most remarkable things about your book is actually that it's full of love and generosity and, and even hope. But I want to focus on the not hope and love and generosity part for just a second. And that is the sense of loneliness that I got from what your experience was like. Like that was the overwhelming emotion for me. Like when you talked about the downtimes. Exhaustion was part of it. 
And that didn't surprise me. What surprised me a little bit was the extent of that loneliness. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think it was such an extreme sense of loneliness that I, it was detrimental. I mean, I, I sought out companionship in places that I shouldn't have. Um, and I, I was desperate at times. Um, and I remember some weekends, like I had a flip phone and, and I remember like squeezing it, just like wanting so much for someone to call me or hang out with me. And, but I always felt like if I asked someone to hang out, like go do something, then I would have to say like, well, let's go get a drink or let's go do this or let's go do something fun that I had absolutely no money for. And so I didn't reach out to people. I didn't want to be like asking someone, hey, can you take me out for a burger? Because I I would really, really benefit from that right now. Um, I didn't want to be, I didn't want people to have sympathy for me. And so I, I kind of walled off myself for the most part. I have to ask again, in, in sort of the, a parallel to whether or not you 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 feel like you, in a, if you had to do it all over again, which of course we hope you never do, you may have gone to a food bank. Do you wish that you had maybe taken more steps to reach out? Not that it's your responsibility, but it does sound so crushing. I I do sometimes. I I have actually heard from people who have read the book uh, who knew me, um, especially when I lived in Port Townsend, where the book begins, we're living in a homeless shelter. Um, I had people say like, oh my God, if I had known how bad things were, I would have said yes when you asked me to babysit Mia, or I would have given you a free haircut, or God, I would have like given you leftovers from the bakery or, you know, whatever. But I think, I don't know. I just, I had this thing where I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. Mm -hmm. And, and I think if I would have been able to just plainly say, um, I don't have enough money to feed myself right now. Like, is there any way that you can help me with that? Um, my life probably would have been a little bit better, at least for that day. Hopefully. I don't know. I, I'm also thinking that they would have helped me if I would have said that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also want to emphasize, I don't think it was your responsibility at all. And I'm almost more interested in it as kind of getting a picture of the systemic problem and the ways that, that people are complicit, you know, the assumptions that we make about each other and about our income and our class, right? I think there's that, but I also think that a person in my situation, how to help me is so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I mean, where do you even begin? Like, do you watch my kid for eight hours a day so I can work? Do you... Uh, put me on your health insurance? I mean, do you give me a job? Do you, um, there's so many things that people think about immediately that are like big, really, really big picture things. When really I could use 15 bucks or I could use uh, a new pair of pants or I could use like just one nice meal for me and my kid. Uh, or sometimes just someone to sit with me and say, what you're going through is really hard. And it's not normal. It's not what other people experience. And I am just here to sit with you right now. And I, I guess I, I should clarify what I meant by the, how it gives us a picture of the systemic issues. I, I do mean how people can individually do something. 
right? Like, and the assumptions we make about other people and their class is I'm thinking about the people who might have said to you, do you want to go out? And you said no, because you didn't have the money to do it. And how how that assumption that everyone is always in the same class as we are, right? Like, is maybe not a great one to make, you know? Like, maybe our existence also, our social existence shouldn't also always be, maybe our social existence shouldn't always revolve around purchasing things, you know? Like, that might be a good way to be inclusive in our lives. Um, And then also, you're right. I mean, you said this earlier. We need to make it okay for people to talk about this at all. Because that's one reason why people just didn't know, right? Because you just felt like you couldn't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I it, it took a while for me to finally start telling people either through the blog that I was writing um, or just like Facebook posts of how how hard things were. And that's when the bags full of toys started showing up on my doorstep. Um, that's when I would get gift certificates to like Walmart or Target, like anonymously in the mail. And that's when people finally started reaching out and and helping me is when I started talking about how hard it was just to find a job or to find childcare for Mia or just to go out and do anything with her on a rainy day. A question that occurred to me throughout the book, how did you keep from developing paralyzing resentment against the people whose homes you cleaned? Well, there was some level of resentment, (laughs) but I don't know if it was paralyzing. Um, It was good that I had a job to do Mm -hmm. that was very specific and that I could separate into compartments. Um, There was one house in particular, um, one house in particular that I, I absolutely hated cleaning for many reasons. It was a small house. It was filthy. Um, There was sometimes uh, weird things left on the nightstand that I didn't necessarily want to run into. Is this the porn house? Yes, this is the porn house. (laughs) Well, we can leave a little Uh, bit for people to discover in the book. No spoilers, but yes, the porn house. And and I, I hated going to that house and it was three hours and it, it was easy because I was able to say, okay, this counter, this section of the kitchen, now the section where the sink is, now the section where the stove is. And I just worked my way through it. Uh, and then eventually I was done. You, But you do more than not than just not develop resentment. I, I actually, there's places in the book where you are incredibly empathetic for these people. And it's it's such a generosity of spirit. Um, you talk about seeing their antidepressants and, and seeing the spa appointments on the calendar and still understanding that there is something that their lives lacked. For one, did you figure out what it was? I'm curious if you figured out what, their, what, the, what it was that their lives lacked. And then also, that generosity of spirit, where does that come from? Well, I I think the generosity and and that came from the gift of time <laughs> and looking back on things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's part of that. Like th- I wrote the book, you know, 10 years, 10 or so years after I was actually in the time of the book. Um, and, but there was also a lot of um, a disenchantment process going. Um, like I, 
I thought that once you were in the house on the hill and once you had the house that my clients did, then everything was great and happy. I thought rich people were kind of superhuman. Like I thought illnesses never touched them. I thought they never got sad. I thought everything, like they might as well have unicorns running through their yards. Uh, And so when I went in there and to their homes and started cleaning them on a regular basis, like we're talking like two or sometimes three, four times a month spending at least three or four hours in their homes, you get to know them pretty well. And I saw that they were actually human beings who had feelings and who had problems. And um, just because they had better paying jobs or access to medical care and mental health care and prescriptions and all of these things that I didn't have, um, they still struggled with a lot of the same things. And as I mentioned before, there's there's a fair amount of hope in the book. And I think... A lot of that is probably we can we can talk about spiritual resilience being being a part of that. But you yourself mentioned there was a certain amount of privilege involved in being hopeful or optimistic about your own future. That because you came from a, a suburban household, like you were able to kind of imagine it. Oh, definitely. I, I think my my book is very wrapped in privilege and, you know, just because I was white and, um, and because I had an upbringing that was not in totally wrapped up in systemic poverty. Um, and my mom had gone to college and got her master's degree and granted she was the first person in my entire family to go to college. Uh, I was able to see that that was possible and that you can still go to school and get a degree and work at this job that you really want to do. Um, But I also, I talked about it in the book a bit. Maybe I should have mentioned it more, but just saying that like I had this nagging sense that this wasn't my end. And I don't know if that was just personal faith or um, I don't know. A lot of it was privilege, just I never once thought that I was going to be cleaning houses for the rest of my life. Um, There were times that I thought that that was the case. Like, oh my God, it's never going to work. And I just like go into this, like I called it a crushing sense of hopelessness. I, I definitely had days like that. But at the end of the day, I knew like, no, this is not my end. I'm, I'm going to work towards this dream not only because I think it's achievable, but because I want my kid to see that it's achievable. I think that's a really important point to make. Um, and it, it does make your book different. I think there's ways that your experience seems very representative of Poverty America, but obviously there are ways that it isn't. Um, and that you had the memory of this middle-class existence and and were able to kind of know that this wasn't going to be forever is like the big defining difference. But there's also, I, I want to give you some credit too about your hopefulness and about your resilience, your personal resilience, which may come from some privilege. I'll just, you know, sidebar that. Uh, but it's because it's really incredible to me that you were able to summon the self-empathy in times that you needed it. There's a couple of scenes where you are on the edge or maybe in the middle of a breakdown and you comfort yourself. 
You literally comfort yourself. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think a lot of that came from uh, not being mothered myself Mm -hmm. and not having family to turn to, uh, at sometimes not even having a counselor or, or, or really anybody to turn to. And I, I found this mantra and it helped. And I tell everybody who's trying to comfort anyone that it's the same phrase. I'm love, I love you and I'm here for you. And it helped me to even tell that to myself. I think that's really powerful. And in fact, it's inspired me personally uh, to think about the self-talk that I do. Um, I've told a story before that when I was in rehab, um, my counselor told me that I should do affirmations. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was really dumb because <laughs> I would know that was a lie, right? Like I had such a terrible self-image. I knew that if I looked in the mirror and told me you were worthy of love, I wouldn't believe it. So why should I do it? And she said, well, what's your normal self-talk like, right? And it was not good. It was, you know, you're terrible, you're ugly, you're not smart, you're dumb. And she said, so how's that been working out for you? Do you believe that? And um, she had a point. So I think your story and, and the gift of your experience is that that flip side of all the negative self-talk we do can be just as powerful. Yeah, I I actually got the idea from uh, Liz Gilbert's book Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, she she has this moment in the book. It's it's I think it's at the very beginning where she kneels down and prays to her older, wiser self. And I I am an atheist. You know, I I don't pray normally, but at the time that the book was happening, I I did that a lot. Like when I felt the most like horrible, I would start talking to a person that was me 10 years from now uh, who had made it through. And I was absolutely certain that she would be on the other side and that she would be looking back at me with compassion. And the crazy thing about all of that is when the book uh, came out, it had been 10 years since I started working as a house cleaner. And so I realized in this like huge mind-blowing moment, like I am the person that I was praying to Mm. 10 years ago or for all of those years. Uh, And I I think there's a lot of power in that, in just um, seeing yourself as a compassionate and wiser being that um, you'll eventually be able to look back on this version of yourself with compassion. Still working on it personally. uh, (laughs) i think your story is really powerful for me personally. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages? It is a hassle. That is why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you cannot get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service I am a stand for the U.S. Postal Service. I think it's a really incredible thing that the government does. They bring all of the services right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products, even a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. 
simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. And once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It is that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of expensive postage meters. So Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saves you time and money. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners get a free offer that includes four weeks free trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone, the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's stamps.com, enter friends. If you've ever tried to have a serious conversation online, you've probably decided to never try it again. But you still want to engage meaningfully with others, and that's why you are listening to this podcast. You can also do it at Change of You. Changeofyou.com is devoted to healthy and constructive online conversations. It's a moderated discussion forum where people can come together and respectfully challenge each other's perspectives. Wired describes its mission and approach as our best hope for a civil discourse. Like, imagine, you know, one of those internet posting sites, but without all the name-calling and trash. I visited changeofyou.com, and I will say the variety of things they're debating is is pretty— uh, enlightening in and of itself, like what people want to talk about. Um, these are the top discussions happening right now. The media are simply trying to gain viewers by showing footage of the Sri Lanka suicide bomber walking into the church. Arguments pro and con on that. Next topic, free will is an illusion. I hope they get that one settled and then let me know. Um, <laughs> another one, in most cases, music is a waste of time. I would take the con on that position, I, I think I'm actually going to have to read the people who are arguing that is the case. Um, and then, uh, you know, more seriously, it's too late to stop catastrophic climate change, so we should just be working on mitigation techniques for survival instead. I guess my response to that is, why can't we do both? In any case, you see that these uh, discussions run the gamut from very, very serious to probably not as serious. So treat yourself to some time well spent online and discuss things differently at changeofyou.com. I do want to make sure that we mention more about your daughter because anyone who reads the book is going to realize like she's a she's the other character basically, mm -hmm. right? Um but I also don't want to make any assumptions about how important—I mean, part of me feels like I don't want to make assumptions about how important she was, but also I don't want to make any assumptions about being able to have a conversation without her. Um, I guess the main thing I want to be careful about is to not say that it was a mother's—being able to be a mother is what got you through this. But maybe it was. What is, is that the case? Like, having the daughter there, having Mia there, that's how you were able to survive this? I think that's how I was able to go and get up at the time that I did and do the job that I did every single day. Uh, I think if it had just been me, I would have done something else, like even lived in my car or, you know, if it was just like me rambling around, like, but I mean, if I didn't have a kid, then I would have been able to work whenever I wanted to. I wouldn't have been limited to daycare hours and, and then having to pay for daycare. And so 
it's it's kind of a complicated thing, but I I do think that she was this very physical, uh, very very lively needing to be entertained and fed being that I had to show up for every single day. And I I felt a great responsibility to be the person who showed up for her because so many other people in her life were not. And, and so that was kind of what framed my whole existence at that time. And it, I think it helped me kind of feel more sorry for myself than I, I probably could have at the time. Like for me, she was kind of the greater good and the higher purpose to everything that I was doing because it was a selfless act in some way. Um, and it, I don't know, you talked about dignity earlier and whether or not I felt that from working. And it it was amazing to bring home a $10 tip and be able to buy her a treat and for once say yes to something that she wanted. And, and I, at that moment, felt like a, a bit of pride that I was providing for my family even though I was working this horrible job, it was still getting us through. Mm-hmm. And how is Mia? Oh, she's great. <laughs> she's uh, she's almost 12 and she's going to be in middle school next year. Uh, she made me promise that on Saturday this week, we're going to go to all of these stores in the mall and Target um, and buy her some summer clothes because she's growing like crazy right now. She's like almost like up to my shoulder and it's weird, Um, but she's great. I mean, I had a talk with her yesterday. I'm just like, look, you know, there's, there's dishes in the sink, the dog poop all over the yard. Like, come on, can you spend like 15 minutes after school and help out? (laughs) And she did like, right then and no questions asked just like oh yeah I guess I could do that and um I I really love that about her that uh she kind of understands that we all need to kind of help out I mean she does kind of have some resentments towards her little sister (laughs) so like well Coraline doesn't have to clean it's like she's four (laughs) (laughs) you didn't have to clean when you were four either right (laughs) yeah no, she did not. I am happy to hear about the dog, by the way, because I'm a I'm a pet owner, and I part of I know part of your future vision included a dog a lot of the time. So like I was going to ask about that too. Um, so yay! I assume there's a dog involved if there's dog poop involved. That'd be weird. <laughs> no, if we just there. have really horrible neighbors. Uh, <laughs> no, we we have a dog. We've had her for almost four years. Um, picked her up at the shelter. I went there because Mia really wanted to read books to cats. And, and so I, I vetted the shelter first. I'd like looked for cute dogs and there weren't any. And so I felt like it was safe. And, (laughs) but we went there and there was like this tiny little, well, she's not tiny. She's like 45 pounds, but just, she looked so small um, and had just had puppies. And like, it was just, we're just, we're her people. And it was like evident, like right from the beginning. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh man, like, <laughs> but she's, she's great. She sleeps under the covers with Mia. It's, it's pretty adorable. 
All right. We could be really down a tangent here and I could tell you about my rescue dog, (laughs) but we won't. Um, That'll just be like something you and I can have someday to talk about. Um, I know, like off off of the mic. Before we go, I want to say, so your story is incredible. And I want to be careful about using the word inspiring because I know that can be kind of condescending. But I do feel like... Anyone who reads it who is who is able to recognize their privilege and relative comfort will probably put it down thinking, I want to do something. What how what would be your response to that? I actually get this question a lot. And um I I tell people to ask people what they need, like whether it's your local homeless shelter, um, the women's shelter, they almost always have a list of things that they need. And it's usually not stuff that you want to buy, but it's stuff that they do actually really need. It's like a lot of it is like feminine hygiene products um, and toilet paper, deodorant um, or clothes, you know, make sure all of us are doing the Marie Kondo thing, like try and donate your clothes to a place that supports um, like a dress for success where they have, um, they have a lot of places where homeless people or people with very little means can go and pick out a professional wardrobe so they can go interview and start a job. Um, Just be mindful in the things where you're donating things, like take some time and, and ask around and and see if it's possibly better to give it to the Habitat for Humanity uh, thrift store instead of just like dropping it off in the bins outside Goodwill. Um, And, but also, you know, a lot of the times if you ask people, they'll give you a very specific thing and it's usually not what you think it might be. I mean, there are times when I would have given anything for someone to just take my kid for like two hours and just give me a break, like take her to the movies or take her out for ice cream, like take her to the park and just let her run around, have some fun with her um, and then come back the next week and do it again. I, I would have, Mia would have, and she has benefited from people showing up in her life every week to hang out with her for a couple of hours because there's no way one person, one parent can be everything for their kid. And it was a gigantic relief to know that if she couldn't talk to me about something, then she could at least go talk to this other person and and know that there was more than one person in her community that she could depend on. And I have held true to that over the years. And she now has like a handful of people that she can call on or, or lean on or, you know, go hang out with uh, who show up for her. And and so if you are overwhelmed with all of these things, like if you have a single mom in your life, like ask if you can take their kids like, oh God, for like a sleepover even. Like I can't <laughs> even imagine how great that would have been. But uh, just take their kids out for ice cream. The excerpt that you read described your vision of a happy life. I'm wondering if your vision of a happy life has changed and do you have it? I would say I'm pretty close to having it right now. Um, I I do have the house and the yard and and the dog and I don't have necessarily a matching 
couch and love seat, but I do have a couch. That's, <laughs> that's pretty nice. Uh, and I, even though I wouldn't like attribute the nice things to, to happiness, it's very, um, it's really awesome to, to have this living space that I feel pride in and, and that is a place that I know is good for my children and we're healthy and we're safe. Um, and we, they can go play in the backyard and I don't have to supervise them cause it's fenced in. Um, there's so many things about my life right now that are in that paragraph that I, that I read, um, that are now my daily existence. And, um, I end up talking a lot about toilet paper too. Like I, I have, um, I have a case of toilet paper in my garage and, and that is like just something that blows my mind on almost a daily basis. Um, and is, and is really like a moment for me to check my privilege. Every single time I change out a toilet paper roll, I'm just like, this is awesome. Like I have so much toilet paper because before, like I had to buy it sometimes one roll at a time and was always running out and was always stressed about running out. And so, yeah, there are, there are things in my life going on right now that are on one side, extremely exhausting, but on the other, like very awesome. And you have enough toilet paper. I have so much toilet paper. (laughs) Stephanie, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, You're a delight. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. And that is it for the show. No special words of wisdom for you this week, although I will remind you that we have an email address. It is with friendslikepod at gmail.com. And please send in your suggestions for guests, as well as any questions you might have for the show. Questions for the show usually deal with the intersection of the personal and political relationships and policy. Have a good week, everyone. And please... Take care of yourselves.